Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, we'll talk immigration and the recent deportation order of activist Robbie Rockbeer. Plus, NYC Beer Week comes to Brooklyn. Hi, thanks for joining us today. I'm Ashley Ford, and I'm not going to shut up and dribble. That's what Laura Ingram told LeBron James to do after he publicly expressed his disappointment in our president for not being a good leader, a good role model, and not caring about all the people in this country. Ingram can express her opinion on her radio show, as she does. She can tell LeBron to shut up, as she did. But if she's going to do it, she should recognize her privilege in doing it. But a black athlete who has something to say or something to express, maybe by taking a knee, he can't in her world. As she said herself, a lot of these guys are punks. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. You guys are the elite of the elite. You make millions of dollars to play a game. Here's something I don't think enough people understand. Economic equality is only one part of the full equality experience. And it isn't a trade for one's right to speak on what they believe to be true or the oppressive acts they experience. These athletes don't have to forfeit any rights. We fought too hard for them. And when you come home to find nigger spray painted on your front gate, as LeBron did, then there's a lot more talking that needs to be done about racism and a lot less about how grateful black men should be for what white folks have allowed them to acquire in exchange for a quote unquote good game. On the show today, we're going to talk about the recent deportation order of immigrant rights activist Robbie Rogbeer with his wife and his colleague. And NYC Beer Week is coming, so we invited two guests to talk about their special brews and share them with us. But first, these things. A trial began on Tuesday in Brooklyn's federal court against the NYPD, alleging that cops are making dubious arrests at the end of their shifts so they can get paid overtime as they process their bookings. The practice is known as collars for dollars, and this particular case involves a Bushwick bodega worker who cops allege exchanged drugs while at work. According to court filings, the cops then claimed 27 hours of overtime for four hours of work. The bodega worker claims he's innocent, but the city says his lawsuit is meant to distract from the felony drug possession charges. However, the cop who made the arrest has a history of falsifying overtime and has been the target of other false arrest suits in the Eastern District. This story is a bit old, but interesting. A Brooklyn man was contacted by the Federal Communications Commission late last year because T-Mobile had made a complaint about interference with its network. It turned out the interference was coming from the man's Bitcoin miner. For those who don't know what a Bitcoin miner is, and I had to look this up because I had no idea, it's a piece of hardware that adds transactions to Bitcoin's public ledger. The SEC asked him to desist and gave him a warning saying if he were to further offend, it could be punishable by imprisonment or a $10,000 fine. I wonder if that could be paid in Bitcoin. Probably. We'll see. Then there's this. A new Gowanus bar called Kick Axe, which has batting cage style ranges where beer addled patrons can enter to throw an axe against a wooden wall. There are axe perts on hand to coach the axe chuckers, and as the owner says, people ask, what could possibly go wrong? Our question is, can you handle this? But if you enjoy drinking your beer accompanied by a series of thuds and hopefully no screams, this might be the place for you. 
We thought this was a good setup for our upcoming segment on NYC Beer Week, when we asked what things do you like to do while drinking beer? But we'll be back first to talk immigration issues and deportation. Last month during his scheduled check-in with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, immigration rights activist Ravi Rockbeer was abruptly detained and processed for deportation. But at the 11th hour, a New York judge stayed his removal, ruling that immigration officials had violated his due process. She added, It ought not to be, and it has never before been, that those who have lived without incident in this country for years are subjected to treatment we associated with regimes we revile as unjust, regimes where those who have long lived in a country may be taken away without notice from streets, home, and work, and sent away. But his future is by no means clear. He is due to check in with ICE again on March 15th, and his family and supporters have no idea what will happen then. To talk about the case, we have immigration lawyer Amy Gottlieb with us, who also happens to be Rockbeer's wife. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And Judith Paez, member of the New Sanctuary Coalition, Rockbeer's organization. Welcome, Judith. Thank you. Now, before we get into things, I just want to mention that we teased that Ravi was going to be here today. Unfortunately, his schedule would not allow it, but we're happy, so very happy and lucky to have you two here to discuss these issues instead. Is that okay? Thank you for having us. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. Yes. Um, Amy, can we just start with you telling me what happened the day Ravi was detained? What was that like to show up and to have this situation occur? Uh, yeah, it was um, it was shocking. Mm -hmm. We had been preparing for the possibility of him being detained. We have a wonderful defense committee. We've been meeting regularly. We've been really, you know, trying to figure out what we would do if he were detained. Mm -hmm. But I never, deep, deep down, believed that he would be detained. And right. when we went into the office with the ICE officer, uh, the deputy director of ICE in New York, um, and he only allowed me and, and his attorney in with him, although we had a group of people who were there as supporters. Right. Um, and he told us, this is the end of the road, you're done nothing else. We are uh, not going to grant the stay of removal. We are detaining him. We're putting him in custody. I was shocked. I think the lawyer, Alina Das, was shocked. And Ravi was so shocked that he actually passed out. Wow. Um, I've never seen that happen before. I've never seen him—never seen him ill at all, mm -hmm. let alone faint in front of me. Right. And we tried to reason with the ICE officer, you know, tried to say, like, you know, wait a minute, he still has the same legal case pending that he had back in March. You didn't right. detain him in March. What's going on here? Yeah, he had done these check-ins many mm -hmm. times before, Regularly, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. And the legal status remains the same, although ICE is continually saying he's exhausted legal remedies. It's not mm -hmm. true. He had the same case pending last March that he has currently pending right now. Um, but we had seen this. A friend of ours and one of the co-founders of the New Sanctuary Coalition had been detained the week before, right. on uh, January 3rd. And from January 3rd until January 11th, we felt that uh, we were not safe. Wow. And um, so they they were clearly changing their practices. Mm -hmm. um, what was what was amazing about it is because we were prepped for this just in case, mm -hmm. the lawyers immediately went to court. 
our, you know, co our supporters who were downstairs were doing a Jericho walk around the building, a, right. a silent vigil, like mobilized for a rally, and somehow mm -hmm. word got out that, or uh, maybe I told them, that Ravi was being taken in an ambulance to a hospital. Mm -hmm. um, this incredible surge of support, like, just right. rose up in the streets. Right. And, you know, we as we were in the ambulance, we could see the people who were just stunned right. that this was happening out there in support of us. So once I actually had him in custody, mm -hmm. once he was, once that happened, were you yeah. able to talk to him? Were you able to see him? Like, was there a point in time where you didn't know where he was or what was happening? So initially, um, they were required to get him medical attention, so they allowed me to go in the ambulance, which was generous of them. I mm -hmm. don't think they had to do that, but they did let me in the ambulance. And he was handcuffed. Um, there's a photo I took that's out there in the world of him mm -hmm. handcuffed. Um, but when we got to the hospital, they told me to get out of the ambulance. Ravi had asked for a wheelchair because he wasn't feeling well. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I knew, the ambulance drove away and they disappeared. And I actually believed, looking back, I was really naive, that they were just going to another entrance where they were going to wheel him in in the wheelchair. Right. And so I waited there for maybe an hour or so with my family. Um, and finally, a security guard said, you know, if he's not here, if they haven't called you, he's not here. They moved him somewhere else. And it was not until after 9 o'clock that night that we learned that he had been taken to Miami, Florida. What? So they took him to Bellevue Hospital, claiming that it wasn't safe for them to be at the hospital downtown because of the protests. Um, he took him to Bellevue for a checkup, and then, escorted by NYPD vehicles, was taken to Newark Airport and put on a plane to Miami. Right. Yeah. Right. Whew. We're going to get into more of that. But before we do, Judith, you work with Ravi's organization, yes. um, the New Sanctuary Coalition. And I think that a lot of people, you know, know Ravi Rogbeer's name at this point, and they're learning about the organization, or they might be familiar just with the name. But what do you guys do? At that moment that that happened, or what oh, we no, do? Oh, no, just in, in general. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, we organize with uh, a lot of congregations. It's an interfaith uh, movement. Mm -hmm. So many organizations and immigration organizations also uh, are participating. Also individuals are bringing mm -hmm. their knowledge and their support, their time, mm -hmm. which is precious yes. on these days, uh, to to stand for all people that is facing this kind of injustices. Mm -hmm. uh, we prepare people, friends, we call them friends, the people that it's coming looking for help. Right. Uh, we prepare them. We talk to them about their rights. We talk to them about what they can do to protect themselves, mm -hmm. to not trust just the lawyers that are outside, you know, right. uh, behind the money only. Right. And they need to learn how, how to manage their own cases. And empower themselves. to be able to walk through the process. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, just because you asked, now I'm curious, you know, what was the response of the organization after Ravi had been detained? Yeah, well, at that moment when that happened, all, uh, of course, they protect people that it's vulnerable to mm -hmm. be involved in that kind of rallies and that kind of protest or, or civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. So we were told to go back to to Judson, where, which is our office. Mm -hmm. um, so people like me, like other 
uh, friends, we moved down. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were preparing banners. We were waiting for people to come back to the office mm -hmm. after all that mess happened right. on the streets. It makes sense. One of the narratives that has come out after Ravi was detained is that Ravi has said that, you know, he was targeted because of his activism. Yeah. We've had direct conversations with officers at ICE prior to him being detained mm -hmm. where they talked about how angry they were at what happened at his check-in in March, where they wow. talked about, you know, we don't want these elected officials coming around. Uh, they talked about, uh, you know, having seen things that Ravi said in the papers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, talked about Ravi's quotes and articles. I mean, they, they talk about those things. Uh, and then to have it happen one week after Jean Montreville, mm -hmm. the co-founder of New Sanctuary Coalition, was arrested, around the same time that we learned that uh, an activist in the Seattle area mm -hmm. had been sent a notice to appear in immigration court around the same exact day that Eliseo, um, I can't remember his last name, was, was arrested mm -hmm. in Denver, the husband of somebody who's been in sanctuary, who both have been very right. outspoken. There's suddenly a pattern that um, I don't think you can deny when you see all these people in the span of just a few days. Mm -hmm. um, being detained, being detained yeah. by the same people in the exactly. same way. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me, because this is something that I think was initially confusing to me, and now I have a little bit more information, but um, I think the viewers probably don't, or the listeners uh, probably don't as well, which is the, uh, people always think if you are an immigrant or if you are someone not born in this country and you marry someone who is a citizen, you're a citizen free and clear. So it seems, you know, looking down at paper, it's like, well, he's a citizen. Amy's a citizen. That is his wife. But that's not the way it works here. Can you explain why that's not the way it works? It's not the way it works for, for quite a few reasons. In mm -hmm. Ravi's case, he has a criminal conviction mm -hmm. uh, from way back, from 2000. Um, and basically, anybody who's a green card holder or has no other status uh, or no other immigration status mm -hmm. um, who has any kind of contact with the criminal system mm -hmm. is almost always deportable. Mm. And that kind of outweighs any relationship, outweighs in the mind of the law, mm -hmm. uh, any relationship, any equities, any you know, anything that that person does in their life. All the immigration judge is allowed to look at because of our immigration laws that were signed in 1996 is that crime, right? that criminal conviction. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what you do, unless you can get rid of that criminal conviction or, you know, really right. um, have amazing legal teams like we do, right. it's very, very hard to overcome that. Now, talk to me about that conviction, mm -hmm. uh, because I know that it's something Ravi's challenged in the past and is still challenging. Yes. Where are you with that? So that case is pending, the mm -hmm. challenge to the underlying criminal conviction based on some due process issues in the underlying criminal case, mm -hmm. um, based on actually whole, uh, a whole host of factors. Um, so we are challenging that, but at the same time, I think it's a conviction for wire fraud. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, though, we're, we're really careful when we talk about this because we don't want to say that, well, if Ravi had a criminal conviction, then it would be okay to deport him because right. we really believe that it's not okay to tear apart, apart families, that the laws need fundamental change right. so that, you know, even if a person might have done something in their past, mm -hmm. that a judge should be able to look at the whole person and mm -hmm. see their family ties, see how long they've been here, see what they've done 
in their community to to you know be able to say yeah this person had one bad act but you know we hear politicians right. and others talk about second chances all the time but if you're an immigrant you don't get that second chance yeah you absolutely <laughs> don't and that's what we're um, really fighting against that's really interesting like keep that in mind because I have to. There was an op-ed recently that got amplified on NPR about how Ravi, because of his conviction, is not a perfect immigration icon. Now, personally, I read something like that and I think, why does the person have to be a perfect representation of their background, of their ethnicity, of where they come from, of you know, while they're here, in order for them to be worthy of basic humanity? Uh, which is just how I see it. But that's a thing, right? When people are trying to push a narrative, when they're trying to get support from places where they don't normally get support, it's like, how do we get support from these people who live, you know, in this place where they're, they don't know anything about immigrants or refugees or whatever? We want those people to understand, you know, the cause that we're pushing here. That's what we want them to understand. And we can only do that if they can purely, purely support the person. How does that compromise the humanity overall of the people dealing with this issue? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one of my favorite questions to talk about, because we've been struggling with this narrative, the good immigrant, bad immigrant, for years and years and oh, years. Yeah. So, you know, the work that I do at the American Friends Service Committee and other partner organizations, New Sanctuary Coalition, you know, we don't make that distinction, right? Because who's the perfect person, right? right? I mean. There, there is no such thing as a perfect person. But it's also true that what we want to be really elevating is a narrative where, as you say, the humanity comes first. Mm -hmm. And so if a person did do something wrong at some point in their lives, we want to be able to show mm -hmm. forgiveness, that this is—we talk about being a nation of, of family values, of laws and support. Like, how, how do we talk about that but yet not be able to forgive someone? Mm -hmm. And what's been really interesting to me, and I've been doing this work as an immigrant rights activist for over 20 years, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've worked with undocumented communities, I've worked with people who, you know, are trying to have status, I've worked with asylum seekers, people in detention, people mm -hmm. with criminal convictions, and in many cases, it's the, it's the stories of people who have served time on prior criminal convictions that are the most compelling to communities who haven't been on board with some of the other issues because mm -hmm. the due process question and this idea of double jeopardy mm -hmm. is one that people can relate to. They can say, you know, wait a minute, he served his time. He's already been punished. Mm -hmm. So even if you can't get your mind around um, you know, the root causes of migration and the right. stories of people coming here seeking better opportunities. You understand fairness to you a certain extent. You can understand fairness. Absolutely. And that's been a very interesting development, I think, mm -hmm. in how we talk about this work. And I think we have a lot more to do to really get that narrative shifted because it happens not only in the immigration, as you say, like it's in all communities, it's like, well, how are we going to dangle that? It's everywhere for marginalized folks. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So, Unfortunately, it's everywhere. Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, we, we only have a little bit of time left, but I want to ask you both, what's, ne what's next? What's next? For, for Ravi, like, what's next? Yeah. 
So we're kind of in a waiting period right now. We're waiting for a decision uh, from a judge on whether he will extend a current stay of deportation. Mm -hmm. We have a stay in place until March 15th, and so mm -hmm. we're in a little bit of a scary moment. Um, but we do think it's it's important for us to really be challenging the behavior of ICE right now mm -hmm. in the court system because they are not being held accountable for their actions, and that does need to happen. So we also have the First Amendment case pending. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're going to continue to elevate and tell the story uh, and make sure that when we talk about these issues, mm -hmm. that we talk about them from a place of love and from a place of humanity. And I think New Sanctuary Coalition, you can talk about that, Judy, but is moving forward in that same direction. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up. We've just run out of time. I know, it's so right. unfortunate. There's so much we can talk yeah. about uh -huh. here. So hopefully we can have you guys back another time, but thank you so much for being on today and for really talking about this in a way that we can understand. Thank you for having us here. Water on Mars, I Feel the Universe, and Naranjito. Nope, those aren't songs from the latest alternative rock band or Justin Bieber collaboration. They're beers from two local breweries, which will be represented at NYC Beer Week, kicking off on February 24th. Here to tell us more and to let us try some of their beers, and by us, I mean me, are Basil Lee, president of the NYC Brewers Association and co-founder and CEO of Finback Brewery. Welcome, Basil. Welcome to the show, Gabe Barry, Beer Education and Community Ambassador from Brooklyn Brewery. Thanks for coming today as well, Gabe. Thank you for having me. You guys, I'm so excited about this. So let's just jump in. First of all, tell me about Beer Week. Why is it important to the city? Why should people go? Go ahead, Basil. So Beer Week has been going on for a few years now, and I think every year it gets better. Mm -hmm. It's important to the city because basically we're building a really wonderful local craft beer community in the city. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's been building for a few years and now it seems like it's really kind of come into its own. Oh yeah. Um, so it's a celebration of all the breweries that produce here as well as just craft beer in general. I love it. Yeah. And Gabe, what are people going to see when they show up? Well, so I think one of my favorite things about kind of beer in general is that it, it has a tendency to be a reflection of a sense of place, mm -hmm. and it also has the ability to be a, a real cultural connector of a lot of different creative communities. Absolutely. And that's what's fun about a week like Beer Week for us, mm -hmm. um, whereas for people like Basil and I, every day is Beer Week. Yes. Um, but uh, throughout for these, this like seven-day period of the year, you get to see a lot of different collaborations of parties, a lot of different uh, venues, mm -hmm. really showcasing some incredible visiting breweries from out of New York State as well as upstate who don't necessarily make it down here as well. Right. It makes sense. And Gabe, can you tell me really quickly, and actually this is for both of you, as local brewers, what are some of the greatest challenges that you guys find in the market? Well, so I think that actually um, both Finback and Brooklyn are really great examples of how the struggles in the market are really different depending on who you are. Right. Um, for me, I like to think about um, the craft beer industry kind of as almost in the same way as like a, like a record label right. um, in that each musician, each band kind of has its own different thing. And right. depending on your mood, you're going to want to listen to something different. Um, mm -hmm. So for Finback and Brooklyn, we're really kind of very different kinds of breweries. For us, as the 11th largest producing craft brewery in the country mm -hmm. um, that's just turning 30 years old this year, um, and about 50% of our 
all, our total market share is all international as well. Um, mm -hmm. so, so for us, um, efficiency, I heard you say that earlier, yeah, it's something you I like. Um, uh, quality control, mm -hmm. um, and then also just uh, management of product in the market, making sure that everything is as fresh and defended as it is when it left our doors, that is, mm -hmm. as it is when it makes it to you. To you. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think to follow on that point, for, for us as being a, a, a much different kind of scale brewery, a smaller brewery, you know, some of the challenges is just really trying to do as much as we can. Um, you know, we have a small team. Um, we, we have a small team. We do everything. We do our own kind of sales, marketing. We self-distribute in the city. Um, and so just really trying to, trying to, to, to stay ahead of the game, you know, to really to, to, to achieve our goals. Um, but on the other hand, I think, Right now, it's kind of a great time in the city. There's a lot of demand for beer. There's a lot of excitement from consumers, oh, from yeah. the market in general. Like my fiance. <laughs> and, and so super the, excited about them. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so I think that um, it's like it's a it's a time. The challenges, a lot of them, I think, are you know they're, 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 we kind of place them on ourselves to just mm -hmm. make the best beer we can, innovate in beer, and kind of just be interesting and, and relevant in the discussion of beer. I and love so, this. Yeah, so, so I think some of those more than some of the other yeah. market pressures. I love that, it know, so much. Happen. Let's try it. Let's yeah. get into the beer. All right. Start with the Bel Air. I'll start with the Bel Air. So, um, so as I, I mentioned, um, Brooklyn is a, a brewery that's been around for 30 years. Our flagship is, is Brooklyn Lager, mm -hmm. um, which kept the lights on for about 30 years now. So this particular beer, um, this is new for us. This is something that's called Bel Air Sour. Party Bel -Air Tartly Sour. is the motto of this beer. Um, this is exciting for us. Um, one of the thing, one of the ways that beer is made sour, it's a mm -hmm. few different ways. It's either uh, spontaneously fermented, barrel-aged, kind of in the context when you think about beers like um, Cantillone or here in New York City, Long Island City Beer Project has a cool ship. Um, the stainless side of souring uh, is, is through inoculation of, of bacteria. So this is a house-cultured lactobacillus tart. Ooh, I'm spinning in my chair. That's okay. uh, tart, crisp. We dry hop this beer with amarillo hops, so we get some nice kind of tropical yeah. aromas, pineapple. Yes. Um, I think beer is a lot about balance, um, and for me, this is a beer that the balance is between tart and sweet as opposed to bitter and sweet, yes. as we see sometimes. Yes. Um, I hope you enjoy it as much as we uh, do. I enjoy it. Cool. So I'm taking that with me. Awesome. Thanks very awesome. much. How about Basil, hit me. What am I messing with? All right. Well, this is actually going to be a good compliment to that beer. Also yeah. a sour beer. Um, also soured with lactobacillus, so it's mm -hmm. a, a pretty clean beer. It's a Goza, which is a traditional German style. Uh, Originally tart and a little bit uh, has some salinity to it. Mm -hmm. um, this is is a pretty tart version, also quite salty, and then we finished it with coconut. Ooh. And so we, you know, we always like kind of um, experimenting with with different flavor combinations and ingredients. Um, so a little bit kind of tropical, a little bit fun in terms of a salt and sour play. Mm. And that's something I've always really admired about your guys' beers, Basil, is that you, as in there's a lot of different ways to play with different botanicals and different ingredients. You guys have always really maintained an incredible balance, um, and that definitely stands out in all of your portfolio. Look at y'all. Look at y'all community. I love this. First of all, I love this. Second of all, it actually really does get into like my next question here, which is just that there's so many IPAs and like really, really flavorful beers now. Like that's a thing wherever I go, like they're really talking about the flavor in beer. Is that just a trend or is that an expansion? You want to go first? I think. I mean, I think it's. it's I think it's both. I think it's yeah. definitely a trend in that it's just become so popular, and and I think it's become almost a catchphrase that introduces 
people who aren't uh, quite uh, in the know about craft beer, it kind of almost is the is the first thing. It, people just ask for an IPA. Even right. within IPAs, there's just a, a wide variety oh, of IPAs. Oh, and the history of IPA is, is, is quite long, and there's West Coast styles, and now there's East Coast styles. Right. Um, but I don't think it's a trend in that it's going away. I think it's an expansion. <laughs> um, right, yeah. exactly. I think that it's happening. We're going to keep happening. doing it. And unfortunately, yeah. we've run out of time, and I'm no so worries. mad oh. because I wanted to talk about beer so much more. <laughs> it happens. But thank you guys so much for being here. Hopefully, we can have you back next beer week or maybe just sometimes so that you can bring me more beer, to be perfect. Any we can time, work it really. out. Yeah. Fantastic. Tomorrow on 112BK, City Council member Alika Ampri-Samuel joins us. Psychiatrist and author Jonathan Metzel on guns and school violence. And an organizer and an artist will tell us about the Myrtle Avenue Art Walk. See you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hobbesack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.